Teensters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. We are drinking the most delightful tea right now. Isn't it good? It's so good. Ginger, peach, and turmeric. Yeah. I've been um, <laughs> really into some tea ASMR lately. Huh. Like, I love the sound of tea being scooped by a wooden spoon. I really do. That's such a specific <laughs> sound. I thought you were talking about like the tearing of the paper to open the tea bag. No, no, no. Like and then this the pouring is like of the loose water. Loose tea. Oh, you're listening, like you're seeking out actual ASMR. Yes. Like you're not doing it yourself. No. Oh. I am partaking of, you know, the YouTubes <laughs> and the plethora of options. I enjoy watching the ASMR cooking things. They're like out in nature and cooking over a fire. Have you oh, got- I love the fire where you're like, damn, I wish I had those knife skills. Yes. Yeah. Or a fire. Or a fire. Some marshmallows. Uh-huh. We could have a whole s'more. Every time I go camping, I bring my like huge cast iron skillet and then I make every single, you know, a food in the cast iron and everything sticks to the bottom. So I have to find a way... Hmm. I don't know if I could line it with something like... Maybe uh, use more oil? Or what is the word I'm thinking of? Aluminum foil. And a cast iron? Just to line the bottom? I don't know. I'm not an expert. Am I posting recipes on our Instagram? Absolutely. Do I know what I'm doing? No. (laughs) (laughs) You've got more of a handle on this than me. But I do have a fun campfire um, recipe. Okay. So you get a banana, mm-hmm. you leave the skin on, but you cut down the center of the banana okay. and put chocolate chips and mini marshmallows inside and then wrap the whole thing in tin foil and put it in the fire and it melts everything and the banana gets all gooey and mm. it's just excellent. Opals and panunus. <laughs> I haven't done it good. since I was a kid, but mm, watch out next bonfire night. <laughs> That sounds delightful. One time I had a panic attack at a bonfire because my good friend Claudia had a like really unsafe fire in a yard situation and I had to like physically remove myself because I was like, oh no, we are going to catch something on fire. I couldn't even hang. I was like, I gotta go. (laughs) Everything was fine. I used to have panic attack at panic attacks at bonfires because I thought a murderer was going to come out from the woods and we would all be so enamored with the fire that we wouldn't see what was coming up behind That's us. That's some country shit. Yeah, I am from the South. Uh-huh. Yeah. On my um, 19th birthday, I had we had a, a fire in the back of my suburban parents' house and we caught the lawn on fire and my dad had to come out. I was wearing my brand new Ugg boots. Oh, no. And I, Not the Uggs. I know. And part of them got burned. And it was like like day two of having them. Oh. I had a little scorch mark. You know. Yeah. So. My first world problems. Yeah. We, of course, live in the country. Or I grew up in the country. Mm-hmm. And a tree recently fell in my dad's yard. And I suggested that we cut it up and have a bonfire. Like, that would be a fun thing. You know, my brother and I can go and visit. 
And his response was, I was thinking about putting the branches at the edge of the woods because there are coyotes. And I've seen some bunnies recently, and I want the bunnies to have a place to hide. So oh, he doesn't want to burn the tree because he wants the bunnies to have a safe place to hide. That's sweet. It makes me so happy. He's a good man. He is a good man, Charlie Brown. I love that. I know. I also love a good bonfire, so I was torn either way. Right. 50-50. <laughs> so I had a, um, a flashback from 4th of July weekend. And um, because when I was in Philadelphia mm-hmm. uh, meeting my VIP, you know, rock star husband. Yep, yep. Um, I, Ray and I had been partaking in some mimosas, some mimosas. I also, it just hit me that you said rock star husband. Yes. Rather than fiance. And I just got all warm and fuzzy. Oh. Because I just got your wedding <laughs> invitation. So I'm super excited about it. <laughs> Anyways, continue. Rock star husband. I was talking about Flo Rida. Oh, I thought you were talking about Ray. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Both, yes. Uh, So anyway, um, we were basically like drunk at 2 p.m. And I made the best decision of my life and I bought a painting. Oh, is it your new painting? My new painting. And it is hanging in, in the living room now. And it was on display for a while, so we couldn't get it delivered until... I was about to say, that was a while ago. Yeah, it was like coming off of Pride. I was feeling just fantastic. I bought a giant painting of Marsha P. Johnson. It is a gorgeous, giant painting of Marsha P. Johnson. It is so cool. It needs to be featured on our Instagram at least weekly. Oh, yeah. And the artist is Tiff Ergehart. Ergehart? We'll tag her on the Instagram or tag them on the Instagram. Um super talented artist oh my gosh that painting is incredible yeah and there's like other ones of the set there was a lady gaga (gasps) yeah oh i didn't see a dolly but there was you know all kinds of other people there as well well. tiff if you're listening to this we're big dolly fans oh yeah Um, we have a group chat that's basically a dolly fan club oh yeah i saw that candle that you sent to the chat saint dolly saint dolly amen Yeah. yeah but speaking of Marsha p johnson do you know what the p stands for i don't So I was watching a documentary about Marsha P. Johnson and the Stonewall riots. Mm -hmm. And when someone, when people would ask her what the piece stood for, she said, oh, honey, it means pay it no mind. Mm. So she said whether, you know, anything about her life, just pay it no mind. Pay it no mind. So that's what the P. Marsha, pay it no mind, Johnson. I love that. Me too. I love that for her. That's very cool. But yeah, so we had... um, Oh, it was like and, a little surprise from like four months ago. That I love that you yeah. bought a little surprise for yourself. Also, for those of you who don't know, Marsha P. Johnson is credited with throwing the first rock during the Stonewall riots Yes, um, in New York City that kind of really kicked off the gay revolution. Mm-hmm. So The gay-volution. <laughs> <laughs> it was led by trans, queer, people of color. Mm-hmm. So we Absolutely. love that. Just wanted to... Quick disclaimer for anyone who may not know. And definitely a piece I will cover. Oh, absolutely. At some point. Well, now that you've got her hanging in your living room, I absolutely. think you have to. I have to. It's an obligation. She's going to be staring at me every day. Until you do. Until I do. But speaking of history and psychology. Fun what, transition. What topics are we talking about today? Um, Probably uh, there is no good transition into my topic. Um, 
because we're talking about narcissism and that has nothing to do with oh. Marsha P. Johnson or the Stonewall riots. No, but narcissism so, is a good one. Hard left turn. Gotcha. Yep. All right. So it has been uh, about two weeks, maybe three, since we talked about ancient Greece. And oh my God, are we talking? We're going we back get to away. ancient Greece. <laughs> so much starts there. But we're not starting with our guy Hipp- Hippocrates. Instead, we're going back to Greek mythology, kind of like um, Oedipus, Oedipus and Electra. Mm-hmm. Electrolytes. <laughs> so according to Greek mythology, Narcissus was a handsome and proud dude. Mm. One day, he is walking and he sees his reflection in the water and becomes so enamored with himself that he can't stop staring. He remained at the water's edge until he eventually realizes that his love will never be reciprocated and he turns into a golden white flower and dies. What? And that's the story of narcissistic personalities. I did not know about the flower part. I didn't either. In fact, initially when I wrote this, he just died. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I read. And then I was like, let me just double check. And there's definitely, he turns into a flower, which is also beautiful and Uh semi-poetic, but a flower can't look at itself. No. So Is that why he dies? No, it's because he's a flower. It's because he's a flower. Yeah. And flowers die. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) People die. People die. Flowers die. What is life? We can't have an existential crisis within the first 10 minutes of this episode. No, it's also a Tuesday. We've got to get through the week. Yeah, we've got to stop recording on Tuesdays. I know. Happy Tuesday. We'll see you in two days. (laughs) For this exact episode, because Uh, we're still behind. So sorry, Jacob. (laughs) We're so glad that you're still here for this. Please never leave. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we toss around the term narcissistic and narcissism pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. Our society is like built around this idea um, of self-love and from the outside, that vanity being like to an extreme is something that people frown upon right so there's like this counter movement of encouraging people to live their best lives and like post as many selfies as you want none of this is actually narcissism but it's the word that gets thrown around Mm -hmm. so we're going to clear up a few things okay we're going to talk about what narcissism actually is and how it develops and who else has been a part of this narrative Um, And then treatment, because narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder um, are real and very serious. Mm -hmm. So narcissism, or those with narcissistic personality disorder, which is very hard for me to say because I have a lisp, (laughs) is going to be now NPD. NPD. Yep, just because S's are hard. Because. Yep. Um, people with NPD have an internalized and grandiose image of themselves. This inflated self-image allows them to avoid feelings of deep insecurity. Mm-hmm. So root cause, deep insecurity, we're avoiding that by becoming overly confident. Uh, NPD involves a pattern of self-centered, arrogant thinking and behavior, a lack of empathy and consideration for other people, and an excessive need for admiration. Mm-hmm. Gotta get that validation. In every area of your life, constantly. Constantly. Yeah. So all of the all of the insecurities are happening on an unconscious happening on an unconscious level. A deep, deep unconscious deep. level. Like push it. You down. may not even realize that you have insecurities. Uh, um, like what, you, a, what a weird labyrinth isn't brain it? thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird pattern, weird labyrinth brain thing. Mm-hmm. I want to trademark weird labyrinth brain thing. I was just thing. about to say that. 
how uh actual angel ashley can we have merch that says actual or that says uh labyrinth brain thing what'd you say what did i say something about labyrinth brain thing <laughs> hey ashley <laughs> rewind 10 <laughs> seconds <laughs> make merch <laughs> this is why we don't record on tuesdays folks People often describe those with MPD as cocky, manipulative, selfish, patronizing, and demeaning. Mm-hmm. Everybody has that person they're thinking of in their head. Yep. That one person. We're going to mm-hmm. just see how many boxes they check. Perfect. But first, we need to go back in time and learn more about the origins uh-huh. of MPD. We have some other friends who are going to show up that you'll recognize. In the early 1900s, Otto Rank published what's considered to be the earliest descriptions of narcissism, which connected self-admiration and vanity. A few years later, our friend Freud... Oh, hey, Freud. (laughs) If it's not Hippocrates, it's Freud, published a paper called On Narcissism, an introduction. He had to make it weird and about sex, and he said that narcissism is connected to one's libido and direct which is directed inwards towards oneself or can be directed outwards towards others. I'm going to explain all that in a second. Mm -hmm. He felt that infants directed all the libido inwards, and he referred to this as primary narcissism. And then secondary narcissism is what you would develop as an adult. So according to Freud, um, we develop an ego between infancy and early childhood. So it's not something you're born with. You kind of develop this sense of self later um as the ego is developing it's directing the libido outwards towards objects objects being the mother oh my god did you think we'd be back here because it's a psychology podcast we'll be back here many times um or other family members people or true objects the child is egocentric because they believe that they're the center of the world and their needs and desires are pretty actively being met by the mother, ideally. Mm -hmm. As the child grows up, they realize that things cannot always go the way they want and not everything is about them, so they become less self-centered. From this observation, Freud concludes that all of us at some point have a level of narcissism. However, we tend to outgrow it and our love for others takes hold. So this is infantile or primary narcissism. Again, being it being replaced... Right. Like you're, you start off, you're the center of your own world. Mm-hmm. You have to be a little bit narcissistic because Survival. everything is genuinely about you yeah, at that you point. You can't even hold your head up. No, you're a little baby. Um, baby. And then as you are able to like express love towards others, your mm-hmm. narcissism goes away because you're like actively putting love out. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Spreading the energy. Precisely. So when object love is unreciprocated and unreturned, it stops the flow of the libido and that energy starts to flow back into the ego. And as a result, we get secondary narcissism. Hmm. Quote, this is a pathological regression to primary narcissism triggered by a traumatic event that blocks the flow of libidal energy towards the outside object. Basically, all that love and libido got to go somewhere. Mm hmm. Freud concludes by essentially saying that by giving love to others, people diminish the amount of energy they have for themselves. And if they don't receive the love from the world in return, they just start turning all of that love that they would be giving others back inward. So as to meet their own quotas. Okay. It's kind of an interesting take on it. Yeah. I, I think that 
it's an easy way to explain certain people's experiences and certain people's personality, but it doesn't match every experience. Like not everybody who doesn't receive love from the outside is a narcissist. Correct. Right. Correct. So, um, and again, I think that you hit the nail on the head a couple of episodes ago, like Freud is literally just looking around him and is like, this is what I observe. Mm -hmm. Let me write it down. And people are like, Oh, it's Freud. Let's listen. I spy. (laughs) So I think that there's some interesting things about this that he may have gotten right. We'll talk about that more. Um, But most of this, I don't think, has to do with the libido. Like, I don't think it has shit to do with a sex drive. No, of course it doesn't, you silly goose. Or sexual energy. No, No. sexual energy. Silly goose. No, narcissism has nothing to do with sexual energy. Like, in, in the olden days, like, sure, he's staring at himself. You know, he's falling in love with himself, I guess, yeah. right? But, you know, that's a metaphor. It didn't actually happen. It's not real. It's Greek mythology. It's a fairy tale. Yeah. It helps us understand and explain things. Mm-hmm. Um, so Freud's just kind of adding to that narrative. Then, during the 1950s and 60s, uh, psychoanalysts Otto Kernbeck, different Otto than the 1900s, mm. or early 1900s, and Heinz Kuhut, Kuhut, however you say your last name, kind of sparked more interest in the topic. Kernberg described the, quote, narcissistic personality structure, and he developed a theory of narcissism that suggests that there are three major types, normal adult narcissism, normal infantile narcissism, and pathological narcissism. So, like, there's a level of self-love that are normal for adults and children, mm-hmm. and that there's a pathological, like, issue of narcissism. Um, he then came to a different understanding of narcissistic personality disorder and went on to take some of Freud's earlier ideas about narcissism and expand on them. So that's 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. By the 1980s, narcissistic personality disorder is officially recognized in the third edition of the DSM, and criteria were established for its diagnosis. As a reminder, the third is the first one that had research to back up mm-hmm. their diagnoses. That's good. <laughs> yeah. So we're glad that happened. Right. Yeah. Still not up to par, but we'll take it. Exactly. Um, so going back to like what narcissism actually is, narcissistic personality disorder is one of several types of personality disorders. I think there are 10. Okay. This one is characterized by an inflated sense of importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and of course, a lack of empathy for others. Mm-hmm. However, uh, what? I don't know. It just is reminding me of. People. thinking of a specific person like everyone else who's listening uh-huh yep a cheeto perhaps huh <laughs> tell me more about this cheeto no 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 did we'll he have get, a toupee I'm sure we'll get to it <laughs> um however there is often a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to even the slightest criticism mm-hmm. um people with mpd may become impatient or angry if they don't feel as though they're receiving special or appropriate treatment check mm-hmm. um they feel slighted or taken advantage of without cause that's the big thing is like feeling like nothing is fair and like that paranoia yeah you know, yeah that people are out to get you and right that you're right all the time exactly exactly 
um, they might react with rage and try to belittle other people to make themselves feel superior. Think of gaslighting, mm-hmm. like pretty consistent gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Um, difficulty regulating emotions and behavior, feeling deeply depressed and moody when they fall short of perfection. That makes sense. Yeah. Like that super checks out. Um, exaggerating achievements and talents and being preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, beauty, and the perfect mate. So in that sense, Freud may have been right. Experts mm. experts estimate that up to 5% of people have NPD, and it tends to affect more males than females and often begins in the teens or early adulthood. So when they're growing out of the child... Because mm-hmm. I, I do understand the child narcissism right because they don't understand sharing and and not having that instant gratification right exactly but i i do see where you know people would grow out of that yeah pretty naturally yeah and some children will show like even more extreme signs or traits of narcissism like um if you have more than one children you may notice that one of them seems to like be showing more extreme signs But typically it's due to their age and maybe even their place in the birth order and just not having their needs met. And usually that means that they or that doesn't mean that they will develop narcissistic personality disorder. That's good. Yeah. I mean, it is still pretty rare. Like 5% 5%. of the it's small. Yeah, that is small. Yeah. So what causes narcissistic personality disorder? Um, There are three basic theories and no one actually knows. The first is the environment, Um, childhood trauma such as physical, sexual, and verbal abuse, early relationships with parents, friends, relatives. Um, Some researchers think that if you're already biologically vulnerable um, to being predisposed to having a personality disorder Mm -hmm. or narcissism, and you're raised by parents who are deeply overprotective or conversely deeply neglectful, Mm -hmm. that that might trigger it even more. Yeah. Two, genetics. Um, There could potentially be a genetic component. There hasn't been enough research to actually prove that. And third, neurobiology, which is like the connection between the brain and behavior and thinking. Mm -hmm. So like something about the brain is not wired Mm -hmm. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I could see all three of those. Yeah, exactly. In some capacity. Yeah. The environmental one for sure. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's so hard to tell what's environmental versus biological. Um, And we can't do experiments, and we shouldn't be doing experiments. Mm -hmm. Um, Albie. Because poor little Albie. So I think it's just such a complicated thing to figure out why people are the way that they are, especially when it comes to personality disorders. What do you think is the difference between this narcissism and entitlement? Oh, that's a phenomenal question. So I think entitlement, I think the difference is empathy. Like you can feel entitled to things while still having empathy for others and maybe even understanding why others don't have the same things that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't diminish the fact that you still feel entitled to them. You just can understand wrap your mind maybe around maybe understand it a little bit more okay um 
I mean, true and deep entitlement probably is a really fine line between that and narcissism. Mm -hmm. And obviously, narcissism is a diagnosis. Right. And entitlement is not. Right. Um, I think we tend to think of children as being entitled and adults as being narcissists. At least in my mind. I think of adults being entitled also. Maybe young adults. Maybe Maybe young adults. Yeah, like in their 20s. I think of entitlement just as, as... privilege basically yeah yeah and again the difference of course between privilege and narcissism are huge and much clearer to yeah like differentiate um but i think there's this level of seeking out a perspective that allows you to understand other people Mm -hmm. that's not present with narcissists that could be present with people without narcissistic personality disorder Mm -hmm. um I think there's a natural desire for most people to understand and care about other people. Mm -hmm. And narcissists tend to lack that. Right. Is narcissistic tendencies, I've heard that kind of being thrown around. That's less of a diagnosis and more of I mean, it's not a diagnosis. It is like a self-diagnose. Like it's a you labeling somebody else Mm -hmm. as having that Mm -hmm. which i would be inclined to advise against Mm -hmm. um unless you are an actual mental health professional Mm -hmm. because nobody should be diagnosing anybody with yeah yeah so saying someone has narcissistic tendencies you might be like trying to convey a message about how a person behaves Mm -hmm. like if you're having if you and i are having a conversation and i'm explaining someone to you um I would be more inclined to be like, these are the characteristics that I see. And with the background that I have about mental health, I would recognize that they're kind of closely aligned to narcissistic mm-hmm. personality disorder mm-hmm. or narcissistic tendencies, which I don't love. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's a way of describing people that there's definitely a more accurate way of doing it. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to convey a point. Sure. I understand why people would say that. But again, it's kind of like saying someone's bipolar if their emotions are all over the place. It's actually pretty deeply offensive to people who are struggling with mental health stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that people tend to overuse and overdiagnose other people. Mm -hmm. A little black and white thinking. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we don't ever speculate at all. <laughs> <laughs> we should yeah. have a podcast. <laughs> um, so narcissism can cause problems in all areas of your life, such as your relationship, work, school, and financial issues. People with MPD may be generally unhappy and disappointed when they're not given, of course, the special favors, admiration that they believe they deserve. They may find that their relationships are unfulfilling and others may not enjoy being around them. Obviously. I can see why. So what is treatment? Because recognizing that you yourself may have some narcissistic traits Mm -hmm. or that the people around you or people that you love even may be exhibiting some of the things that we've talked about here. Like therapy is the first step. Mm -hmm. Everyone should be in therapy. Um, This is also the only way to be diagnosed, which can be difficult because people with narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder 
don't want to acknowledge that there is an issue. Yeah. Or they don't see themselves as the issue. They see everyone else around them as the issue. Right. I bet that's a really tough one. It is. It's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, personality disorders in general are really difficult. It's more than just like depression and anxiety. Yeah. Um, And maybe that's something that we should be talking about at some point, like the difference between diagnoses and personality disorders. Okay. That would be interesting. Anyways. um, I can try to contribute to that. (laughs) I can do my very best. You always do such a great job. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, But in therapy, the focus will be on identifying long-term patterns of thinking, feeling, behaving, and interacting with others. Mm -hmm. So step one is identifying patterns that are problematic, toxic, or just generally unhealthy, and then working to correct those. Um, You may work on relating to others in a positive and rewarding way, developing a healthy self-esteem, and having more realistic expectations of others. Um, Couples counseling, family therapy, individual therapy, and even support groups might be beneficial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that is narcissistic personality disorder. Fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, um, a certain Cheeto definitely came to mind when writing this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The paranoia. I, yeah. Yeah. I And I mean, a few other people as well, just with the traits that I see. Again, I can't diagnose them as having MPD. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do it. <laughs> that's all you, boo. <laughs> I'll do it. Um, but yeah, I just, I find it to be so interesting. And I love that as we're talking about these things, like going back to the roots, like where did these names come from? Mm -hmm. Who has talked about them before us? Like how they seem so modern, but they've but the the concept goes way beyond back to wildest dreams dreams and Greek mythology. Like people were already recognizing in others that narcissism was an issue. Well, and narcissism can be dangerous. Oh, absolutely. People in power who are exhibiting these traits are putting other people at risk. Yeah, there's an inflated like sense of self and overconfidence. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize the harm you're doing. And you have to have certain personality types to hold certain occupations. Yeah. And... Oh, in all kinds of fields, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I would say certain certain people in certain spaces are more likely, maybe, mm-hmm. to exhibit these. For sure, yeah. Things. No, I would totally agree with that. Um, but it can be... It can be tough. Like, imagine dating a narcissist. Well, I imagine... Or marrying a narcissist. Dating, marrying, or being raised by a narcissist. Oh, yeah. Like, and there are so many books out there because I think one um, common trait of narcissists, and it's not a thing we talked about here, is just kind of a general like immaturity. Like, you because you don't have a strong sense of self, mm-hmm. but you have a grandiose demeanor and like ego, mm-hmm. um, there's a level of immaturity there because you don't have the awareness right um so there's a book called um children of oh narcissists yes (laughs) uh but the one i'm thinking of is children of emotionally immature parents i think Mm. that's supposed to be really good i haven't read it myself um but there's so many ways to support 
support people who love narcissists because like one of the things about narcissists is they also like make you feel really good when you meet them. Mm-hmm. Um, they they tend to be a little bit more charming, charismatic, charismatic, exactly, and charismatic cult leader. Right, they're like <laughs> trying to pull you in, mm-hmm. um, and then you don't realize what's going on until much later. Mm-hmm. So I understand the allure, mm. and like confidence is attractive, right? Oh, for sure. Like confidence is sexy, mm-hmm. um, but just realizing that how deep it goes and what the root causes are like it's and a lot of times people don't realize who somebody truly is until later also oh absolutely you're just trying to kind of get through the whole experience whether that's lasting an hour or your whole lifetime yeah i was just watching last weekend riding in cars with boys have you seen that uh-uh so it's drew barrymore um in the, it's like in the 90s okay but basically she gets pregnant young i think she's still in high school and she kind of resents her child and kind of grows up and is a young mom and it has it kind of cuts to these like current scenes where he's older and he's now picking her up to go do x y and z and you know he's like i can't move because i'm worried about staying here to help you and support you. And that's oh, kind of what this is making me think of is, you know, uh, it, having parents that yeah. are, you know, narcissists and having and feeling obligated to kind of support them and take care of them. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about all the trauma that that perpetuates, because if you have a parent who's a narcissist, like you can never expect them to meet your own needs because you're going to be expected to meet theirs. Mm-hmm. So like what kind of, anxiety and depression and lack of sense of self do you then develop Mm -hmm. or i mean even complex ptsd like um abuse is more common um in people who are in relationships where people have untreated mental health issues Mm -hmm. or mental health needs um and just like lowering your expectations like that sucks to have to do yeah the parent yeah with any any situation oh absolutely absolutely but um, thinking about how that then, like, later plays out in your own life is mm-hmm. it's just a lot to process. Oh, always yeah. such an upper. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I brought you Operation Midnight Climax oh last week. Oh, my God, week, yes, so. you did. <laughs> <laughs> this week, I thought I'd remind you the dark side of... Oh, that one was super dark, too. Never mind. I'll bring you an upper soon. Oh, that's all right. We love the we love the darkness. <laughs> um, Ari, well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're taking I don't know part what we're two. taking. We are picking up part two of the Book of Mormon. We'll bury that. And we're back. And we're back. Welcome back. Okay. So if you somehow missed last episode, if this is by chance your very first episode listening, go back and listen to last episode where we talk about the Book of Mormon part one. Yep. So just a quick recap. According to the Church of Latter-day Saints or the LDS Church, the Book of Mormon is a collaborative text with various authors 
That is another testament of Jesus Christ. It gives additional information about a group of people in the Americas that was visited by Jesus. You there? Are you with me? I'm still very confused about how we got to the... I mean, I understand how we got to the Americas. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're there. I just don't fully grasp. Yeah. So Jesus went and visited these guys after his resurrection. They were entrusted to pass down these additional texts uh, that were written in a language called Reformed Egyptian. So can you clarify just one more thing for me from last week? Yeah, give me one second. Let me finish my intro. Go for it. Mormon was instructed to compile all the books into one place, and his son Moroni finished the last two books, and he hid them in the ground for later. What's your question? So my question is, Jesus died on the cross. Correct. Put in the tomb. Popped up like a daisy. Three days later, popped up like a daisy. Said hi to his friends. Yes. In Jerusalem? He spent 40 days with his disciples, according to the Book of Mormon. Okay. And then he disappeared and then came to America. Correct. He ascended and descended into the Americas. He just whoop, whoop, whoop. Yep. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I understood that he didn't, they weren't proposing that Jesus was somehow buried in the U.S. No, 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 no. He took a little trip, floated on over. And he went and saw the Nephites. And the Nephites, we'll do a quick recap of them again. And the Lamanites. And the Lamanites. But the Nephites is who he went to see. They're considered the good guys. And we'll come back to them here shortly. Okay. All right. I think I'm with you again. Perfect. Love it for you. Let's buckle up because we're about to talk about Joseph Smith. Smith. My body is ready. Smith. All right. On December 23rd, 1805, a little baby boy is born named joseph smith john smith john smith when he was 15 or 16 and i say this because there's four different accounts of this particular event okay joseph smith went into the woods when he was 15 or 16 to pray to ask god which religion he should join so Joseph Smith is growing up during the Second Great Awakening, so there's a lot of options at this point because there's a lot of ideas kind of floating around. So he's going into the woods, going to have a chat, a little chitty chat with God. Sounds very witchy. He's trying to figure out which direction he should be pulled in because he's hearing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And it is said that both Jesus and God show up while he's praying and told him not to choose any of the religions that were being proposed at the time and that they had a special plan for him. All right. Visited. Visited by by the father and the son. Yeah. The Holy Ghost. Where was the Holy Ghost? He was on PTO. (laughs) Unavailable. All right. But during this time, Joseph Smith and his families were into some mysticism. So (gasps) you were right. I love mysticism. His family used magic stones mining rods seer stones all of these things they used the seer stones to because they claimed that it would allow them to show you where buried treasure was Uh uh-huh uh and of course they were charging for this right so the seer stones they were using a lot his mother was totally into the mysticism and she actually prophesied that one of her sons was going to be a prophet. 
So that's kind of the environment that he's growing up in. A little moony kind of Right, vibe. right. So did his, did he, is he the one who's like, yo, my mom predicted that I was going to be a prophet? Or is there an actual account of her being like, yo, my son's going to be a prophet? It's not in the Book of Mormon, but it's just <laughs> known that like... His and, mom and was on board. I don't know where he was in the birth order. I did not find that. Um, but there, there were more than one son to choose from. So she was just like, indoor plumbing, it's going to be big. Like somebody's going to be, <laughs> somebody's going to do great things. One of you guys better not fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if she had more than one son, her odds g- dramatically improve. That is correct. It is also important to note that this first vision where Joseph Smith sees God and Jesus and they talk to him is considered a founding belief in the Mormon church. Like it's a foundational scene, very important because this is where they tell him no other religion, do not accept any other religion, something is coming for you. So it's really what the whole Mormon belief is based off of. So without this initial, like if, if anything in this particular part weren't true, if they didn't come to him and say, no other religion is acceptable, um, then any other thing that it was built off of would be considered not bogus, but discredited. Sure. If that makes sense. Sure. So three years later, on September 21st, 1823, Mormons believe that Moroni, which is Mormon's son who finished the books, visited him while he was praying and tells him of the texts that him and his father had compiled and he tells him where they're buried and i'm really hoping that you don't know this but i'm going to ask you anyway um which sacred area of the americas do you think that moroni buried these books oh okay let me think for a second um new jersey I can't oh, do a Jersey accent. Can you? Very close. No, I no. don't know. I okay. always turn it into Midwestern somehow. <laughs> Upstate New York. Oh, I was actually you decently were close. Very close. What made you think that New Jersey was so holy? Um, Everything is legal in New Jersey. Is it? No, I, I was just trying to think of a place that would be least likely and hope that for whatever you reason. were very close yeah very very close i'm very proud of you thank you so much so the next day jesus the most really was my thought <laughs> upstate new york <laughs> um so the next day he's gonna go find these books and he finds these through quote divine guidance what about the seer stones though no seer stones at this point. Okay. So he locates the scribes buried underground in a box. Um, and the where they were buried is now called the Hill Camorra. So even though he found the plates, he was not able to take the plates for four years. And each year he would revisit the plates and ask Maroney, you know, hey, can I take the plates now? And each year until the fourth year, he was told no. Also in the box is something called the Urim and Thunum, which was a special pair of glasses for him to translate the texts. 
Um, random. Mm-hmm. And the alchemist, there are two stones called Urim and Thumim. And that's what that reminded me oh. of. I just wanted to share. That might be, that might, maybe I'm pronouncing these wrong. I don't actually, I mean, I can't see your notes. I can't uh, see my notes either. <laughs> but maybe there's some overlap there. Maybe. Link up there. Uh, there was also a breastplate and a sword in the box. What's in the box? The pages of the texts were six by six by eight. Those are the dimensions. Okay. And they were held together by three rings. And they these were sheets of metal like we talked about. Six mm-hmm. inches by six inches by eight inches? Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. Huge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Big. Yeah. Big boys. <laughs> um, so these are sheets of metal. These are gold. And... I read something that said these, if these were the dimensions, they would have weighed about 200 pounds. I was just thinking those would be super fucking heavy. Yeah. So Joseph Smith takes these texts, all 200 pounds of it. He takes them home. Is he Hercules? He is Hercules. Hercules, Hercules. Um, And he kind of moves them around his house because he's fearful that people will come and steal them. Mm -hmm. In 1827, he begins to translate the documents. And interestingly enough, he does not use the Urim and the Thunum to translate. Instead, he uses a seer stone. So the seer stones did come back. Seer stones. Don't call it a comeback. (laughs) They've been here for years. He uses a seer stone in a hat. So imagine a top hat. You stick the stone in the bottom and then you stick your face in the hole. Okay. He's translating these documents, but he begins to translate the documents when the documents are not even in the room. Sometimes the documents are not even in the house. So I have some questions. Yes, ma'am. If someone gives you... Okay, you remember textbooks in school? Uh Uh-huh. Where the answers were in the back of the book? I have back problems because of those textbooks. Oh, for sure. Um, but, you know, the answers were in the back of the book. Uh-huh. I feel like whoever left the gold plates and left him these glasses, it's basically giving him the answers. And he's still like, nah, let me make this as hard as possible by using a hat and a stone. Hat and a stone. Did Without not the use tablets the even being there. Mm-hmm. There's some arrogance there. That's what that is. That is. I also wouldn't trust it. Right. Once he's done translating these documents... He gives the plates back to Moroni. Okay? Okay. Once they're all together, you can you can see some similarities between the texts and the, the Bible. Like you can notice some some interesting um, like some of the some of the books and some of the, the verses sound really similar. And there's there's some not so great uh, portions of of the texts that are now being translated. And I'll give you an example of a shitty one. Okay. So last week we talked about the Nephites and the Lamanites. The Nephites and stress the Nephites whose ancestors wrote or compiled the Book of Mormon. Sure. Were the good guys. And the Lamanites were considered the bad guys. In Nephi 2, chapter 5, verse 21, it says, Wherefore as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, 
that they might not be enticing unto the people, the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. End quote. So this is where God is separating the Nephites and the Lamanites. And the native people of the Americas uh-huh. are not white. And I'll let you draw some conclusions there. But basically, Racism. there's an insinuation that the Lamanites are either Native Americans or Central or South American. That sounds like some religiously institutionalized racism. racism. Exactly. One more time for the people in the back. Exactly. And one thing that I do need clarification on, and if anybody knows, please let me know. Because in the last book, the Nephites, like, won. Um, and so if, if the Nephites won and the Lamanites were no more, then when they colonized, when colonization happened, why were, like, why was everybody not white if the Nephites, like, won? Do you know what I'm saying? I, so the reason that Greek mythology and stories and fables exist historically is to explain things. So, like, if you're trying to explain why people have different skin tones mm-hmm. and using stories to create reasons why people have different skin tones before we have the science to explain what melatonin is mm-hmm. melanin. melanin before we have the science to explain what melanin is um like to some extent i understand like trying to make sense of the world around you sure however in this story it sounds like they're just justifying exactly. racism they're, they're and that's what they're doing they're using religion to say this group of people is descendant from these bad people and mm-hmm. therefore they are bad and the way you can tell they are bad is because of their skin color right and that's icky right exactly and additionally if the stories are correct then the lamanites were descendants of people in jerusalem um if that were the case there would be dna evidence mm-hmm. which of course there isn't correct uh, so that's also, you know, a good point. Um, the Book of Mormon also mentions a few plant, uh, animal, and weapon variants that did not exist in the Americas until the Europeans came over. Yeah, you said sword. Yeah, so last episode we talked about the Nephites and the Lamanites having a big fight. Somebody was scalped with a sword. Like, those swords and even the swords, like, in the box, like, that was a modern sword sword so and 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 it even talks about like wheat and cows and horses and shit that like literally did not exist even pigeons aren't even from north america really Mm -hmm. oh i didn't know that yeah oh that's a fun fact so nevertheless despite all these things joseph smith was like this is great this is perfect Sign, seal, deliver. The seer stone. publish this shit. Yeah. So he decides he's going to publish it to the masses. So, quote, Smith enlists his neighbor, Martin Harris, as a scribe during his initial work on the text. So basically, people are writing as, as he's, like, sticking his face in his hat. Harris later 
mortgaged his farm to underwrite the printing of the Book of Mormon. So he like basically takes out a second mortgage to pay for cool. for the publication of this book. Got a lot of faith That's in this book. That's a good neighbor. Yeah. Shit. Man. In 1828, Harris prompted his wife, Lucy Harris, repeatedly requesting that Smith lend him the current pages that had been translated. Smith reluctantly accepted to Har- Harris's request. Within weeks, the manuscript was lost. Lucy Harris is popularly... As pop- Lucy Harris is popularly thought to have stolen these initial manuscript pages, though historian Don Barley contests this as probable rumor from after the fact and emphasizes a member of Harris's extended family stole the pages. After the loss, Smith recorded that he had lost the ability to translate and that Maroney had taken back the plates to be returned only after Smith repented end quote so his neighbor's wife is like can you like get a copy of this shit (laughs) Um, (laughs) if we're mortgaging our house right like let me like get a return on my investment maybe yeah so she it's i i read something else that said that she like threw it in the fire they don't really know what happened and so you know martin then goes to back to joseph smith and it's like oh sorry we don't know where it is but the wife's thinking is like, well, if he's a prophet, he can just retranslate it. Had he already returned the gold tablets at this point? The gold tablets apparently had been returned. Okay, so now we have no manuscript. No manuscript. But he's doing it from a seer stone, and the and the books were never present. So, read and doesn't that sound what you will. So Martin Harris asked Joseph Smith if he could jot down some of the characters on the plates. Without Smith knowing, like, he he did give him the slip of paper, and without Smith knowing, he sent the paper to a professor at Columbia University. And the professor claimed that it was not hieroglyphics at all. That's because it's Reformed Egyptian. Right. (laughs) Which is, like, these are symbols like hieroglyphics. Sure. But it was just gibberish. Yeah. Martin then goes on to be one of the founders of the church. Huh. Mm-hmm. That's like a fun plot twist. Mm-hmm. A little detour. Yeah, a little det- detour. So in 1830, the book was published, and then a few months later, he starts his own church. So a few things could happen before you join the church. The first was that you were given a Book of Mormon, as they still do today. Um, and you were asked to pray on it, which they also still do today. So uh, the, the thought is that you pray and ask God whether the book is true. And if you feel the feeling, great, you're in. And the next step is to accept Joseph Smith as a prophet. And then you're in. Cool. So did you pray on your book? No. Okay. I did not. Okay. I'm not a praying that's fair. Kind of gal. Um, what I find to be interesting, so you said it was 1938 is when the neighbor opened his church, right? Mm-mm. Or is that when Joseph Smith opened a church? This is 1830. I'm sorry, 18. Apologies. That's mm-hmm. what I meant to say. So it's been less than 200 years. Coming up on 200 years, but mm-hmm. less than 200 years. Happy anniversary. Yeah. A couple of years early. Yeah. 
Um, how did it grow as quickly as it did? We're going to cross that bridge. Perfect. So the church moves from New York to Ohio and then to Missouri. Mm-hmm. They were run out of Ohio and actually were tarred and feathered in Yikes. Ohio. That's why they went to Missouri. Um, in in Ohio, they wanted to start a bank to build a temple. And they essentially like counterfeited money and had a Ponzi scheme, essentially. Link up so there. They were uh, tarred and feathered and then they went to Missouri. Had they... Aren't, isn't there a huge uh, LDS community in, like, Utah? That is correct. Okay. So, after Ohio, they moved to Illinois to a town that was later called Nauvoo. And they got to work to grow the city. And it was actually, like, larger than Chicago. It was, like, really? the biggest city for a while. Yeah. Wow. And, of course, Joseph Smith declares himself the mayor of this town. Of course. And... He, they even like had an army of like over two thousand men, which shockingly was about a third of the actual like American army size. Wow. So, which was like six thousand. Uh huh. So the neighbors were like kind of cautious of this group because they were like, "What is happening?" Like, they just happened to have an army of. 2,000 people like that's that's like an internal army like that's questionable so behind the scenes joseph smith is actually practicing polygamy along with other like church leaders at the time um so he had started in the 1830s but became it became an open practice in the 1840s in nevu it still had to be hush hush because of state law but he was not only marrying single women, he was also marrying married women. Hmm. So you kind of see this power dynamic because he began to approach, you know, the, the men in the community saying, you know, God has led me to marry your wife. So mm-hmm. during this time, like new people were coming in, but, but then people were also leaving at the same time. Right. So while this is all happening, Joseph Smith is also getting into the Freemasons. So this is an organization that takes secrecy like very seriously. And so it's thought that Joseph Smith used this as a way to keep polygamy a secret and other like Mormon rituals and traditions. Right. The Freemasons have a series of handshakes and ritualistic practices um, that are kind of mirrored within the the Mormon faith. Ooh. So I can't remember if I have this in my notes. I might be jumping. But like to get into heaven, there's a series of of words that you say as well as hand movements, kind of like a handshake that you have to do in a certain order in order to to basically like unlock the the secret code to get in. It reminds me of those teachers who stand outside their classrooms and have a secret handshake with each kid that comes oh. into their classroom. Have you seen those videos? Yeah, it's I pretty think they're cute. super cute. It's kind of like but that. That's, like imagine Jesus bebopping around waiting for people to show up yeah. and be like, yo, you know the magic handshake? Right. Well, come on in. Or the parent trap handshake. I wonder oh, if that's yeah. it. It's similar, I think. I'm Probably. Sure. But it's the same for everybody. Oh, okay. 
One of the previous members of the church wrote a newspaper slandering Joseph Smith and the community. And because Joseph was the mayor, he had their printing press destroyed. Well, he was then kind. He was then arrested uh, for preventing freedom of speech because of these events. So he's in jail at this point, and they sneak him in some weapons. So what could go wrong? Mm-hmm. And a mob gathers outside of the jail. And Joseph Smith's plan to escape is to shoot out, to have a shootout. Shoot him out. Just like in New Jersey. Right. Everything is legal in New Jersey. So he died from multiple gunshot wounds. And he also killed three people in this like gangsta fucking Holy shit. showdown. I know. All right. I know. And that particular part is not like taught within the Mormon community, like the gunfight or even that he was jailed. Um and we don't really know who the mob was at this point. It could have been Masons because they were kind of pissed off because he was basically using their organization as like an internal. Mm-hmm. They were using it for reasons that it was intended. Right. But it's it's really unclear. But Joseph Smith did die. Um, and they held a conference to decide, you know, where to go from here. Wow. Um, and Brigham Young. Uh, t- took over as, as head of the church and later did uh, declare himself a prophet as well. Mm-hmm. There's a university named for him. Mm-hmm. And there, and and he's the one that brought the church to what is now Utah. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, this was done in 1847, but it's so funny because at the time, Utah wasn't even a part of the U.S., it was actually a part of Mexico. So the intention, really? yes, the intention was possibly like to escape the polygamy shit and go to Mexico. Uh-huh. I don't know Mexico's polygamy laws from, you know, 1847, but was not included in your research. Some might speculate. Um, but right before they get there is where the, the Mexico-American war happens. And that land is then gotten under under the ruling of the u.s right right but they had already invested so they they went to utah oh yeah and they began their their ministry you know there and it it grew internationally the missionary part of the mormon church is a rite of passage for young boys and it's a two-year program where they go out and wear uniforms and they ride bikes and they knock on your door and they spread the word And for the next part of my notes, I'm going to do kind of a few more points about the general belief system of Mormons, although I do realize that religious experiences are very personal, uh, but these ones I found particularly interesting. Okay. Number one, quote, the LDS church publicly renounced the practice of polygamy in 1890 but it has never renounced polygamy as doctrine, as evidence in LDS scripture. It has always permitted and continues to permit men to be married to Mormon, married in Mormon temples for the eternities to more than one wife. Okay. Number two, 
1978, black and brown folks were able to join the Mormon church and get married in the church. As of what year? 1978. Oh, okay. Glad you finally got there. It took you a hundred and something years. Yeah. Number three, Mormons believe that God once had a physical body. Oh, now that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. 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 Number four, there is a heavenly mother. I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. Five, Lucifer and Jesus are brothers. Jesus was the firstborn spirit child. There was a war between the two over a plan for salvation. Jesus's plan was that Jesus would come to earth to be an example, teach and sacrifice himself so that he could uh, become resurrected. I actually like that conspiracy theory. That might be something I would be interested in reading some fan fiction about. Mm -hmm. Is that actually in the Book of Mormon? Or is that just a teaching of the church? Or it's got to be. Church? I can't quote anything off the top of my head. Okay. Um, but it has I'd to be referenced somewhere. Some Jesus Lucifer fanfic. That sounds like Zeus and um, Hades. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, similar, similar vibes. Yeah, yep, yep. Mormons believe in free agency. All Mormons have the right to choose. Number seven, they believe that Adam and Eve eating from the fruit is good because if they haven't, they wouldn't have been able to reproduce. Mm. Number eight, I just wrote planet and that's it. So we're going to skip that. (laughs) Number nine, uh, they uh, Mormons are baptized at the age of eight. And this washes away all of your sins that you have done before the age of eight. You haven't even really lived before the age of eight. I hope not. I mean, Good what could you have done by the age of eight? It's like stolen candy from the grocery store? Yeah. So you know how when, when I'm sure you've heard when um, young boys go on missions, they're called Elder... Yeah. Whatever. Elder John. Elder John, Elder Watkins, Elder Easley. Yeah. So every two years, basically, after eight... Um, you are, you're not re-baptized, but you go into, you are, there's ceremonies and you have a different name. Yeah. Up until you're 18 and then you're called elder. So on TikTok, I somehow ended on ex-Mormon, ended up on ex-Mormon TikTok, <laughs> which is a whole thing. I'm sure it is. Um, and it's fascinating. But one of the things they were talking about getting names Mm-hmm. And apparently, you are told your name, and no one else can know your name. Like, you're not supposed to tell anybody. Um, And it's the name that only you, God, and the person who gives you your name knows. Mm -hmm. And someone was saying that she, like, told her friend her name, and the person who had named her, like, gave everyone the same name the same day. No way. Yeah. <gasps> but like they were tarot card tell- reading? Yeah, exactly like our tarot card reading. But they weren't supposed to tell anybody, so they didn't find out for like 10 years because they take it very seriously. Well, and that's one of those things that you have to say with the secret handshake. Is your name. Mm-hmm. Well, and among other things. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. But yeah, so apparently everyone, well, at least in this particular church, everyone was given the same name on the same day. Oh. And I guess the next day they flipped to the next name in the book. Wow. That's wild. Yeah, I thought so, too. Um, I'm trying to... They also have very specific wedding garments that they have to wear, mm-hmm. including what looks like an apron on your head. Mm-hmm. 
So there's all kinds of stuff. I yeah. can't remember. I'm sure we talk about the underwear. I haven't read my notes since I did them last week. So <laughs> it's a journey for me as well. Number 10. Atonement happened at the Garden of Gethsemane and not on the cross. There are certain sins that are exempt from atonement, such as murder and multiple adultery. So Christians believe that through faith and the atonement of Jesus, that was enough to go to heaven. You know, he died for our sins. Mormons believe that, quote, we can be saved by grace after all that we can do. We can be saved by grace after all we can do. Or that's all we can do? Quote, we can be saved by grace after all we can do, end quote. So it puts the burden back onto the believers uh-huh. to make sure that they go to heaven. Gotcha. Number 11. There are three heavens. The celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, which... Sounds like spiders. <laughs> So the terrestrial kingdom is where all the good people who didn't believe in Mormonism, that's where they go. Oh. The lowest kingdom is where the murderers go. But they still get to go to heaven? Yeah. Oh, cool. The outer realm is saved for Lucifer himself and his angels, meaning anyone who accepted the Mormon church but has fallen from grace. All right. Uh, I like that they do have a little caveat for people who are not Mormon. Yeah. Like that, that was always a concern I had with Christianity was if you weren't Christian, you couldn't go to heaven. Or if you weren't like this specific brand of Christian, you couldn't go to heaven. Well, so. and, and the, you know, heaven is a, um, a relative word, I think. Sure. Like, you know, the, the third, you know, the celestial kingdom is like where you want to go. That's, that's the goal. That's the big heaven. So That's- getting to terrestrial, the terrestrial kingdom is not good. No, like you're not going to be happy there. Okay. The goal is to get to the celestial kingdom. Okay. So it's like super good place. Moderate That's the good, good place. place. The terrestrial kingdom is like purgatory. Eh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say, I don't, I don't think it's the we equivalent can't speculate. of purgatory. Okay. But I would say the outer realm is closer to purgatory because it's like, well, because it's not the, it's not hell, but it's not heaven. Right. And knowing that you just sit there knowing that you could have gone to the celestial kingdom. Huh. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So to get, number 12, is to get to the celestial kingdom, you have to be married or, quote, sealed with a partner in the church. So single people cannot get to the celestial kingdom. What does it mean to be sealed with a partner in the church? So sealed is you are sealed for eternity in the Mormon church. Okay. So, so like, you can get married to your partner, wife, husband, yeah. partner. Yeah, hetero, hetero marriage. Yeah, and then you could be sealed with an additional person, like if nope. you can't get married again? Nope, you're sealed to that person for life and your afterlife. Cool. Okay. So number 15, so there is a huge Mormon temple, and it's like the Holy Grail. Um, Going into the Mormon temple, you get to go for three different reasons. When you get married, that's one reason. Mm -hmm. 
you get to go one time for your personal salvation. And, and this is when they tell you how to reach the third level of heaven. Oh, okay. The other reason you can return is in place of somebody who is dead. You can be baptized on behalf of your dead relatives or atone for non-Mormons. Um, and so you are able to, to make those sacrifices on their behalf in this temple. It's a fun little caveat. So you can get baptized like 20 times in a day. For because, 20 different people. For 20 different people of your of your ancestors, just to make sure that they have the ability to go to heaven. The I'm, possibility. I'm imagining them being in the terrestrial kingdom mm-hmm. and then just being like sucked up the way that Level Jesus up. was and then like dropped in a new place. Yeah. Yeah. So abs- absolutely fascinating. I think it's interesting that um, so sealed within the within the church means that you have to have a partner. You have, and I say partner, but they mean like heterosexual, yeah, partners. cisgender cisgendered partner. Correct. Though your spouse, your future spouse, has to be approved by the church. So if you don't have an approved spouse you're not eligible to go to this the the celestial kingdom. Okay. If you're not if you're single, you're not eligible to go to the celestial kingdom. Okay. Um so other other reasons um you know you're constantly earning that salvation, right? Because right. it's not guaranteed. So a lot of people also are working within the church. There's also like a um it's kind of like in you know if you're a methodist you have church on sunday and then like there's other stuff like kind of throughout the week you um you have to be involved in in those things within the church as well that's also expected um so what questions do you have about the book of mormon or about josie smithy (laughs) so I'm still confused about, like, the magic underwear mm-hmm. piece, um, yeah. which I may just continue to be confused about. It's okay. Um, it is used as a physical reminder. Kind of the way that the Jew Jewish people wear um, the shawl that has the different tassels at the end. They each mean different things, and it's like an everyday reminder. Yeah, it's like a physical reminder. You feel it on your skin. Okay. It, it's, uh, you know, and it also, um, for modesty purposes, sure. things like that, you're allowed to take it off at certain points, like if you're married, like during sex and during exercise and things like that. So you can take it off. Okay. Um, I, so I remember growing up, there was a, a decent community, Mormon community in rocks in my hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just find it to be so interesting because I am from a small conservative Southern town that's deeply religious, predominantly Baptist. Um, we had multiple Baptist and Methodist churches, like one Catholic, one Presbyterian, one Episcopal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess a, if there's only one like big LDS church, do they have meeting places? Do they call it a church? Like, do you know? Yeah. Oh, there's yeah. There's there's Mormon churches. Okay. There's just like the one big one. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
in that Utah. everyone like takes a pilgrimage Correct. to at some point. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So you're kind of expected to go once yeah. and you're only allowed one time for yourself. Right. You can't really like go, just go. It's not like a vacay. No. You okay. cannot vacay. <laughs> I, I think I, what I find to be so interesting about religion is that religion serves so many benefits. Like it gives people meaning and it helps, you know, um, helps them feel fulfilled in some ways. Um, I think what I find interesting about the LDS church and Mormons is that it grew so quickly and it just kind of took over, especially in that area, but it has like spread internationally, even though the book itself, like reading it, we have a lot of questions, uh-huh. uh, more questions than we do answers. So I'm just wondering, like, what about this faith is so attractive to people? Right. I think I, I read a lot about, like, explaining the North America part. Like, yeah, you know, all this biblical shit was happening, you know, in the Middle East during this time. Aren't you curious about what was also happening around the, the, the rest of the world? Is it impossible that there were other communities like that that were having these relationships with God? So that's one. Sure. Another one is that they ask you to pray on it. So that's a personal connection that you have. You're literally um, asked to to speak with God directly and use your own intuition if this religion is calling you. And the reason that it's spreading so quickly is because there's an active group of, you know, every year there's a whole new set of young men going out and knocking on doors and yeah. preaching the word, you know? Yeah. And they do that for two years. I just find the whole thing to be so interesting. Absolutely. Um, and I, I mean, I guess it doesn't surprise me that they find converts that way, but in, to some extent it really does. Like it surprises me that that works for them. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, I remember going around trying to get people to buy Girl Scout cookies, knocking <laughs> door to door and struggling with it. I can't imagine going and spreading faith door to door. Well, and I can imagine it's an easier sell for people who already identify as Christian because Jesus is still in this narrative. Yeah. There's just an additional book on top of it. Right. Um. So. I don't know. I feel like I would really love to like sit down and learn more. Not because I'm interested in exploring the religion myself, but just because I want to understand the psychology of like, mm-hmm. what does this add if you did convert from any branch of Christianity to being Mormon, what did this add to your life? Like, mm-hmm. um, also people who maybe grew up in the Mormon church, what was that like for them? And maybe coming out and no, like being ex-Mormon. Mm-hmm. You, you hear a lot of, I mean, you're only really going to hear about people who are ex-Mormon when in a negative light of the church. And right. A lot of people feel like it's, it's um, you know, it's really hard to be a part of a religion where you have to earn your uh, future place in heaven. Your salvation. Your salvation and, and, you know, what happens if your spouse isn't somebody that the church accepts you to marry. Right. And then you're not eligible to go to heaven. Um, you know, 
yeah, what if you convert to Mormonism and you're already married? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that work? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. Um, I think that that's the thing I enjoy the most about history is I still have so many questions oh, at the absolutely. end. Um, and I know that it's a topic that we can come back to. Absolutely. I hope I answered some questions from last week about the authorship thing. Yeah. I like that you kind of let people read between the lines. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dolly's just staring at me. I know. She just so gracefully got up and moved to lay next to you. She like, oh, she thinks you need a bath now. Yep. Oh, all right. Intersections. Yep. Baptized by Dolly. Baptized by Dolly. Intersections. I mean, Joseph Smith was for sure a fucking narcissist. Yeah, but I don't want to pathologize him. I think we can say that he has a lot of characteristics. Like he has the arrogance and cockiness Mm -hmm. and... Maybe some manipulation. Can we say manipulation? Mm-hmm. What's the chances that we have a huge Mormon following? I'd say about zero. Cool. Let's just jump into it. Okay. So without pathologizing Joseph Smith, because we can't, because we're not psychiatrists and we haven't done an actual test, there is some overlap between <laughs> narcissism. There's a little link up. Uh, between narcissism and Joseph Smith. And I think the ways that like he from the ways that he was presented on this episode, like comes across as kind of cocky, like, and maybe even a little manipulative. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I see some common traits, like he felt that he was, you know, predisposed to greatness and, Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, His mother did really lay the groundwork for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And And manipulating, I would also say manipulating, you know, even his neighbor. That's like a really concrete example, right? Oh, yeah. Um, You know, allowing him to financially not go into ruin, but to, to put his neck out there for without considering how that could impact his neighbor, even mm-hmm. maybe and his n- poor neighbor's wife. Good. Yeah. Gracious. Yeah. Um, and then like the arrogance associated with, um, like even transcribing the gold things without using the tools that were provided to him. But mm-hmm. like That's he was, point. he just knew better so sure. he could do it differently or better. Um, even though someone, probably God, was just like, hey, here's the thing you need to decode this. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody saw the plates besides him. And the guy who gave them to him. No, he was, he's dead. But he gave them back to him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a spirit. Oh, cool. Ghost of gold plates right. passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Cool. Never mind then. Well, in that case, just just yeah, reminding you. Yeah, thank you, thank you. No, I appreciate that. There um, will be a quiz. <laughs> it's been a long day. It has been a long day. I think that's fine for intersection. Um. Yeah, I think that people can draw their own conclusions without us having to dive too far down the rabbit hole and 
risk saying that be an intersection for this one. (laughs) There we go. We'll leave it to the future. (laughs) That'll be a future us problem. Oh, future us cannot wait. I cannot. Future me cannot wait to go to sleep. Future me cannot wait for us to be ahead of schedule again (laughs) so that we don't keep having to do this on Tuesday night. Oh, but we have so much fun and we love all of our listeners. If you have not left us a five-star review with words on Apple Podcasts, please do so. People have left us five-star reviews, but it's important to to write us a little note, a little notey. Oh, yeah. We are still giving out stickers if you are interested, or a magnet, you know, whatever feels right or in your heart. Or a pen. Heart. I gave out a pen today. You did? I did. I can't mail the pens, but if you run into Carrie Ann on the street, she'll give you a pen. I've got plenty. Happy to pass them along. Good. Perfect. Please mob her in public in, like, a really safe, <laughs> respectfully, socially distanced way. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, we love you. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaudd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.